as the Bibles are coming around, if you would uh, open them to Luke chapter 16. If you don't know where the Gospel of Luke is, it's in the New Testament. Uh, your page number can be found in the table of contents for the Gospel of Luke. Go to the 16th chapter. And you'll be in the place where we will be reading this morning. And the title of the message this morning is What the Resurrection Doesn't Do. What the Resurrection Doesn't Do. So I'll let you think about that for a minute as you find your pages. Uh, and I'm going to take this opportunity. It's like a family reunion this morning. Some of you uh, had our, our home from wherever you have school and, and you've moved in different places. So this is almost like a homecoming as well. So it's great to see everybody uh, and I'm going to take this opportunity to make one and one only uh, announcement that uh, if you haven't heard, this fellowship will be for the summer months meeting at the Fort Union Military Academy. I want to make sure everybody knows that from May, uh, end of May uh, through uh, June, July, and into the beginning of August, we will be meeting at the Fort Union Military Academy due to the school move that will be taking place, the uh, high school changing location. So, just uh, with the whole group here, I thought I would let that be known. With that said, let's pray. We're in Luke chapter 16. We'll pray and then we'll get into the Word of God together this morning. Father, we are just so filled with joy. There are so many cares and, and complications to life on this earth. And today, Lord, we are just here, our minds, our hearts, our ears, our brains focused and attentive on You. We are celebrating, Lord, what happened uh, some 2,000 years ago, the, the event that has changed the course of history. Uh, you are alive. You always have been. You always will be. You were crucified. You died. You were buried. And on the third day, You rose again because death could not hold You, Lord. And, and we worship You because You are God, and you are alive, and you are alive in our lives, you are alive in our hearts, Lord, we have experienced the spiritual, personal resurrection, and our lives have never been the same since we've got to know you, and since you've saved us, redeemed us. Lord, fill our hearts with joy this morning, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. What a week it would have been for the disciples uh, the women that were following Jesus. I was thinking about this this morning. I believe Jesus was beautiful. I believe He was beautiful. And we know biblically that we know very little about what He looked like. We, there's no description of Him other than uh, there was nothing about Him that would have made you go, man, He's, he's so handsome. He's so wonderful looking. Nothing physical that, uh, that is described that would make us desire Him. But I think that, and I think you would agree with me, that there's a beauty about a person that comes from their personality. I mean, I've seen very beautifully, beautiful looking people that just have ugly personalities. And I've seen people that are, 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 are not poster children for Cosmopolitan magazine. They're not, not very beautifully uh, attractive to look at, but there's something about the way, that's a, there's a personality, there's something about who they are that is just attractive and it's beautiful. And Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. All of the beauty of God was in Him. The beauty of grace. The beauty of justice. The beauty of mercy. 
the beauty of love, all these things. And, and during this week leading up to Easter, his disciples, Mary Magdalene, who, who had been healed from a demon possession, all the disciples he had, they had watched him care for, have compassion on, love, reach out to so many people. I believe that he was beautiful to them. And then to watch him be crucified, it must have been absolutely emotionally stunning to them. Difficult, heartbreaking. And then as they go to the tomb to find him missing, and then he, he appears to them, it must have been absolutely just unbelievable. I mean, unfathomable. They must have thought at first a cruel joke. What do you mean he's alive? Stop it. That's, that's, that's not even funny. That's a cruel joke. Don't play with my emotions that way. But then to find out that this one who was so beautiful to them, this one who they had grown to love so much because of the love he'd shown for them, to find out that he was alive again, I can't even imagine. Awesome. Awesome to think of. So what a week it's been. Uh, Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive today. He's alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. So we're in Luke 16, and, and what the, rex, the resurrection does, many of you know you've been to Easter services for years, many of you, some of you may be your first. Uh, the resurrection is, just simply means to surge to life again. Jesus was dead. He wasn't just in a coma. He, he, he wasn't just passed out for a few hours. He was dead. And so the resurrection means that he came back to life. He's alive again. And so we celebrate that at Easter, not you know Easter egg hunts and Easter bunnies and all those things. We celebrate the resurrection, the surging to life of, again of Jesus Christ because death could not hold Him. He conquered death. And the resurrection for us theologically as Christians, what it means to us, it proves a lot of things. I wrote down a few. Number one, the resurrection demonstrates the power of God. It takes power to raise someone from the dead. Power over life, power over death. Shows that God accepted the work of the cross. The resurrection secures the promise of life after death. The resurrection gives us hope. The resurrection proves that what Jesus said was true. He called it, didn't he? He said, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to rise again. And then he did it. So he must have been pretty knowledgeable about future things that hadn't happened yet. To prove that what he said was true. But there is one thing that the resurrection cannot do or does not do. And we'll find out what that is in Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 19 looking at a story, parable. Um, different people have different opinions about what this is. And we'll get to that in a second. But first of all, the context of this where this uh, narrative is, is placed in Luke 16. Look back at Luke 16, look at verse 13. Jesus is speaking to a group of men. Uh, his disciples are there, and, and the Pharisees uh, are there as well. The Pharisees were the religious uh, men that, that were all about how things appeared, the outward appearances, and, but yet their hearts were still corrupt. And so verse 13, he says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and 
mammon or money. You cannot serve. You can't have two masters. You can't serve one and serve the other because they have conflicting interests. If you're trying to serve one and, and he demands that you do this, well, the other one demands that you do that. You can't do both things. So everybody uh, can only serve, you can only serve one master. And you have to choose who that master is going to be. So that was one thing that gives us the context. The second thing, uh, verse 14 says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these things, and they derided him. Jesus, that is. So we know two things. Number one, you can't serve God and money. The Pharisees were serving which one? They had chosen their God. Their God was money. Now you don't have to be rich to have money be your God. There is just a difference in, in decisions, a difference in uh, philosophy of life. If money is your God, everything you do is based on how much you get or how much the money can do for you. It's all based on worldly things, material things, money-based things. There is no money in heaven. The streets are paved with gold in heaven. Right? In heaven, asphalt is gold. Think about that. So, so money, currency, is, is a very this-world kind of thing. And again, this is what we're, we're getting into as we talk about the rich man and Lazarus. So he tells a story. We don't know if it's true or not. It's about the rich man. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But, verse 20 says, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, we see a contrast. Uh, two men, one is named, the other is not. The rich man is not named in the story. Uh, history has given him the name. Uh, some people know this as the story of uh, Dives, the Lazarus and Dives, which is Latin for rich. Uh, but we don't know his name. The interesting thing is Lazarus, whose name means God is my help, and we'll find out God was the only help he had, uh, he's named. And that's what's so curious about this is because no other parable or, or a parable is just simply an a earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. No other parable actually names someone by name. So it's quite odd that this was a parable that Lazarus would be named. The other thing it doesn't have, which many parables do, is there's no introduction. A lot of the parables say, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he tells the story, tells the parable. But we don't have any of that in this story. So it's quite possible and quite probable that this was a story or a case study based on people that were known at that time. Lazarus may have been a well-known beggar. And this rich man, out of God's mercy, is not named. I think that's so we can substitute ourselves in there. Or they could have substituted their, their, uh, their themselves into the story. So what do we know about these two? There's a rich man and there's this poor man named Lazarus. The rich man, what kind of life is he living? You would say he's living the dream. I mean, this guy has the top, he shops at the best clothing stores. He's got purple clothes. Now, purple was, uh, the dye that made purple was very hard to come by, and so purple clothes were, were very, very expensive. I look around and I see lots of purple out there. You guys that are wearing purple, 
you would have been wearing, that would have been showing that you had some means, you were wealthy, because you could afford purple. The poor folks were all wearing yellow, you know, because that's just like dirty white, that's all. <laughs> he had the best clothes, not just clothed in purple, but also fine linen. I mean, this is a guy who took good care of himself, didn't he? He, 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 he used his money to, to have and enjoy the things of this world, but not only that, he fared sumptuously every day. Now, occasionally, we might go to the buffet, you know, Western Sizzlin' or some nice buffet, and we, we just, you know, when you go to the buffet, you feel like you got to stuff yourself because I'm going to get my money's worth at this buffet, so I'm not walking out of here uh, without stuffing myself to the brim. And we fare sumptuously. He did that every day. And I think in America, I think we fare pretty sumptuously every day, don't we? If you have a pantry, if you have a fridge full, if you have a freezer that has extra stuff in it, I think we fare pretty sumptuously for the most part. But we'll find out that there's no sin. His sin isn't that he was rich. That's not the problem. There are a lot of biblical characters. David was a man after God's own heart. And he was loaded financially. So the sin of this rich man is not that he was rich. So we'll come back to what his sin was. But there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus. Again, God is my help. He is not living the dream. And by the way, currently in our country, uh, the discrepancy between rich and poor uh, is growing. The middle class is disappearing in our country. I was just reading a few articles about this. Middle class jobs are disappearing. They're being replaced by automation can do things that middle class workers used to do. So the American dream is a thing of the past. And so we'll see that you will have in our country even more and more the very rich and the very poor. And the middle class is disappearing. So we have Lazarus. Uh, we don't know how the rich man became rich. We don't know how Lazarus got into the state he's in. But we know he's full of sores. He would have been repulsive to you. He w- you would have avoided touching him. He had some type of viral or bacterial infection. He had no access to health care. He had no food stamps. He had no government subsidy. Matter of fact, the only assistance he got, he says he was full of source and he was laid at the gate of the rich man. Which is interesting because the word laid, it means to throw something without caring where it lands. So who were these people that laid him there? We don't know, but you know maybe... Uh, he was an inconvenience to them, so they just, he evidently couldn't walk. He was lame, uh, possibly, but he needed to be carried there. And they would just toss him by the rich man's gate, and there Lazarus would wait for handouts. He was full of sores, laid at the rich man's gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. That was the best, you know, again, no food stamps, no government programs. The best he could hope for was the mercy of the rich man. And, and they didn't have napkins like we do. So when you were done eating, if your hands had, had you know, salad dressing on them or oil, you would wipe them on a piece of bread. You'd wipe your hands on a piece of bread, and that bread would be discarded. And that is what Lazarus was waiting for. The bread that had been, was simply the rich man's napkin. You know, that's where you kind of, if you're at a formal dinner, you put your crumbs in a napkin and you kind of fold it up. Well, then that would have been taken out to Lazarus, probably by his ser- the rich man's servants and given to Lazarus. 
And again, to add injury, insult to injury, moreover, here's his healthcare system, the dogs came and licked his sores. And I think that a lot of people discuss, well, what, what is this meant to say? I think in some ways the dogs were more merciful than the rich man. The dogs cared for his sores. And, and yet this rich man didn't seem to have much time or interest in, in Lazarus who was at his gate. So verse 22 says, It was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, this is where it gets a little bit astonishing to the people that are listening because just like today, there's an attitude uh, that existed then that if you were rich, if you were well-to-do, you were blessed. You were blessed by God. That that was a sign, your, your, your material prosperity was a sign that God was blessing you. And if you were sick, or if you were poor, then obviously you had some serious sin in your life. And so the rich man, when he died, would have been the one to be blessed in the kingdom. And the poor man, well, he would have just been discarded into hell. That's all he was for. But there is a reversal. You see, God has to explain to us the way He thinks. Because we don't think the right way. And so in this story, God is explaining to us how He sees things. What's important to Him. What matters to Him. And we get the curtains are just torn back. Because here we see the beggar dies. I'll bet you Lazarus, remember again, his name is God is my help. I'll bet he hung on the promises of the Word of God. Of an eternal life. Because this life, he knew he was just passing through. He didn't have anything to live. I, I think he would have welcomed death. I think he was probably looking forward to it. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he used to tell himself. Psalm 23. He's waiting on the promises of God. Because, man, for him, a death was, I believe, a, a welcome thing in his life. So he died. Um, and, and notice how he gets attended to. He doesn't speak of any burial, no funeral. He didn't have many friends. His body was probably discarded, but who picked it up? The angels picked it up. I bet you all his life God was waiting to show him. You see, in this world, we have the church. And God working through His people to show His mercy to the world. And at that time, it was supposed to be through the synagogue, through, the, through the, the religious people, that God was trying to show Himself to the world. And they were failing miserably at showing His mercy. Because they had taken all that God had given, all the blessings, and had used it for themselves. And so no doubt, God, having seen these religious men fail, now God waiting Himself finally for the opportunity to love Lazarus in the way He'd waited to love him. And so in death, Lazarus gets the care that God had wanted to and longed to give to him. He ushers him to, um, to paradise or Abraham's bosom. And that's an interesting uh, term. We don't necessarily understand it. When they ate, they would sit around a table, but it was a low table, and they would recline 
kind of on their side. Well, they, they didn't sit in chairs like we do. They'd recline on their side, and they'd lean on their left elbow, and then there was a person sitting right next to them leaning on their left elbow, and all, so on around the table. So if I was sitting here and you were sitting next to me, it's almost like my head is in your bosom, in your chest. And so it speaks of a, of a, of a meal that you would experience as spoken about in paradise. So Abraham's bosom is, there's Lazarus, and who's sitting next to him? Abraham. Abraham, the Old Testament saint, the, the father of faith. So evidently, Abraham, I mean, uh, Lazarus was a man of faith, and there he is around the table, ushered there by angels. Lazarus is now living his best life. He didn't get much from this world, but man, now he is in paradise. But notice the rich man died also, and, and, and we all do. We all will. The only question is, how big will your box be and how much will it cost? And the rich man had a big expensive box, and no doubt, listen to me, no doubt at his funeral, lots of people, his family, his relatives, all his other wealthy friends, all the other religious men, and they no doubt talked at his funeral about what a great golfer he was. You know, and his, his handicap and all these things. And, and what a good man he was. And just how blessed he was by God. And, and no doubt, he's in a better place now. They would say at his funeral. But what does the Bible say? The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So no matter what was said on earth about this rich man, what was the truth about him? He was in torment. He was in torment. Why? I mean, again, this is what we're trying to get at in this passage. There is an important lesson being taught here. And you're thinking, man, what a bummer of a mess. This is Easter, Steve. Don't you know this is Easter? We're getting there. We're getting there. Trust me. Look, uh, if you've ever had a cavity, you go to the dentist and he gives you a little pain so he can save you from worse pain later on. So maybe you're, you're, um, I'm putting you in a little bit of discomfort here. Because this is stuff you've got to know. You've got to know. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Anybody can tell you what you want to hear. But this is the curtain torn back on life after death. Notice, they both were still alive after their funerals. Because we've tended to think that resurrection is just a Christian thing. That only only Christians live forever. Everybody lives forever. Everybody lives forever. Daniel chapter 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Acts 24, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. There are more passages. You can read Revelation, uh, the second death. There is a resurrection for everybody. And so here we have this, this picture, this, um, this telling about the rich man and Abraham. Now, he sees. So the rich man has died. Lazarus has died. And, and they're still seeing. 
there's still visual ability after you die in, in this afterlife. And there's thinking involved. So he sees Abraham being comforted. Verse 24 says, Then he cried and said, Father, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. All his life he had uh, neglected to show mercy. And now after his death, in his afterlife, now he's saying, hey, I could use some mercy. little help here, please. When his whole life he had lived w- without showing him, there was the Lazarus on his step and it just walked right by him. And now he's trying to tell Lazarus, hey, ha- have Lazarus serve me. Get Lazarus to go get me some water. Wait a second, hold on a second. We don't hear from Lazarus during this whole story. Lazarus never says a word. The conversation uh, is, does not include him. But now he wants mercy. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. You see, the rich man, and here, here's, we're getting to the crux of the issue. The rich man lived absolutely and completely for the things of this world. And because he was living for the things of this world, he, he, his heart was very hard toward the things of God. He did not live with faith. He did not live for God. God was not in his... He looked apart, but God was not in his mindset. He was. His very selfish, very self-indulgent life. His best life really was then. He's tormented in this flame. What does that feel like? I mean, how do he... He's in a flame, but not consumed. But Abraham said, Son, remember, calls him son. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. You see, there's the but now. There's the change of things. And the whole story is showing us that uh, there are some that will live completely and utterly only for the things uh, that are involved here and now. Not living today for eternity. And so he says, listen, it's time, and, and the Greek would, would have it more clearly, it's a command, you need to remember, start remembering that in your lifetime, that he had, in your lifetime, you received or took to yourself what was due. What was due you, you collected, you, you charged, you were a businessman, you did whatever you had to do to make money. Profit was the bottom line. And, and the way your lifestyle was the bottom line. And, and you got it. You had it. You had everything you wanted in your lifetime. He's not guilty of being an adulterer. He's not guilty of murder. He's not guilty of lie, you know, lying, although that may, those things may have been part of it. But that's not the issue here. In your lifetime, you had your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, he had his evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And it, it, it gets a little bit more interesting here, verse 26. And besides all this, as if that wasn't enough, between us, Abraham and Lazarus, and you, the rich man, there is a great gulf fixed. Underline that. If you underline in your Bible, underline great gulf fixed. A gulf, uh, the word literally means to yawn. 
And when you yawn, your mouth gets real big and wide. It gapes open. The word is, is, means gaping hole. Between one place and the other, in this, in this afterlife, in between paradise and the place of torment, Hades, or the place of the dead, there is a great gulf, a gap, a giant chasm. It's the Greek word chasma or chasm. And it's not, it's a mega chasm. Literally, great is mega in Greek. It's a mega chasm. So you're not going to run and jump over there, right? <laughs> ah! Down you go. It's not, you can't pass through. And it's fixed. It's not going to, you know, for a period in history, it's going to close and everybody can jump over and then you get, it's fixed there. What you do now impacts how you live then. What you do now impacts how you live then. And you've you got to get this because our world, look, there is a deceitfulness to riches, isn't there? There is a deceitfulness to riches. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we're thinking that this is somehow what it's all about. And I, I had a friend that I spoke with a, a while ago, and he was just railing on the church. And I get mad when people rail on God's bride, you know. <clears throat> but I was keeping my cool. He's just railing on how the church, you know, has failed to do this and the church has failed to do that. And there's, you know, people starving here and there's kids in need in Africa and the church doesn't really do enough to help them. And I said, oh, how much do you do to help them? Oh, well, yeah. and it, it, he kind of got quiet because he was living like the rich man. He partied. He had his hot tub, and he had his drugs he liked to do, and he had his alcohol he liked to drink, and he liked to have a good time and go out for good dinner. And he was willing to rail on the church, but he had not taken the time to look at how he was living. And so there's this great gulf fix that those who want to pass, and so that implicates that there might be some, as Lazarus, as the rich man would, that would want to pass, that would want to cross over, and who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Once you die, it's set. Once you die, it's done. You cannot change. You cannot go, you know, there's so much um, stupidity and pride about hell. You know, people that say, well, I'll, I got a lot of questions for God when I get there. You're going to have to ask him from across a great cavern. And I think, you know, and, and I want to be, I'm trying to lighten this up a little bit. I know this is heavy material, but it's life-saving material. Because we'll find there was no reason the rich man had to be there. God was completely fair and had warned him and warned him and warned him and warned him. So, but here's the thing. I think one of the biggest challenges of, for those that go to hell, the place of torment, is going to be regret. Have you ever done something you've regretted? And you just, you know, you've done something, you can't take it back, it's done. And you've regretted it. And, and even when you knew better, you still did it, and you regretted it. Man, that's a bummer of a feeling, isn't it? That's a heavy weight. Now imagine, and I think this is going to be one of the toughest parts about hell, imagine carrying the weight of regret for all eternity. Knowing that you sat in a high school in Fluvanna County on Easter Sunday in 2012, and the preacher preached from you directly from the Word of God to tell you about things to come and you still wouldn't believe it. And then to find out that what I was saying was true all along 
and, and that you cannot go back and change it. It's too late. Because we have a hard time with consequences, don't we? We try to protect each other for consequences, try to protect our kids from consequences. And consequences are real. So there was a consequence to an ungodly life. All right, let's keep going. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send who? Lazarus. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Now he's an evangelist. And now he's a beggar, right? It was, Lazarus was the beggar before, but now he is begging because his money can't buy anything for him now. He can't say, let me give Lazarus a hundred bucks to go back over there and to go back, you know. Now, if someone, you'd think that if someone came back from the dead to warn me, that that would be a pretty good, well, we've, thought, we've, we've shared that, you know, oh, it's not necessarily death that we're afraid of, it's what happens after we die. It's just so unknown, isn't it? It's just like we know what we read, we know what we are supposed to think, but it's hard to think that. It's hard to imagine life after death. We just don't have a file cabinet in our brain to put that in. But, uh, but what if someone died and then could come back and tell us what it was like? Certainly that would get our attention, right? Well, this is what he's saying. You see, this rich man now, he's blaming God. He's saying, you know, if someone had come back, I, I would have certainly understood. I would have believed. That's what I would have needed. So therefore, I've got these brothers and they're living the same life I lived. And they're going down the same road I'm, I went down. And there's five of them. And if someone would go and testify to them, what is it to testify? To tell what you know. If, he would, if, if Lazarus could go back and tell... Are they going to listen to Lazarus? Are they going to listen to a beggar? Did they listen to a carpenter from Galilee? Some did, some didn't. Matter of fact, there is going to be a Lazarus who is going to rise from the dead. Four days after he died, and he's, he was stinky because he'd already started to decompose, and he rises from the dead, and then you know what the Pharisees, the religious men, try to do? They say, we're going to kill him. What kind of sense is that? The guy died, he was, came back from the dead, and they go, we've got to kill this guy who was dead and came back to life. We're going to kill him. How do you kill a guy who came back from the, the dead? Oh, if only they could, one could come back. And then Abraham said to him, look at verse 29. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You see, they had everything they needed to believe. And it, was, and it is, again, in, in the original language, they have and continue to have. They, they would hear preaching week after week after week from the synagogue or from the church. They'd hear what was written in, in the law in the first five books of the Bible. They'd hear what the prophets say. They would have read Isaiah 53. They would have read Job. I know my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And even after my skin is, is corrupted and dissolved, I will see him in my flesh. Job chapter 19 says. They would have read all that stuff. And, and he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them, again, it's, it's start to hear. It's a command. Let them begin to pay attention to what's being taught them from the Word of God. You see, sometimes people think, well, miracle is what I need to see. Well, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Because you'd write it off or you'd explain it away because you already have a God in your life that you're serving. And that's the issue. 
Let them begin to pay attention. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And look, he knew that's what was needed. Even from, from hell, he knew what was needed, that his brothers needed to repent. They needed to change course, change direction, live differently. Just like Zacchaeus did. Remember Zacchaeus, that rich man who climbed the tree, is rich and short. And, one, and, and as soon as he says, Jesus said, hey, today's salvation has come to your household. Why did he know that? Because he said, hey, whatever I've taken from people, I'm going to restore it. He went from a taking person to a giving person. It's a transformation in someone's heart and life that just happens by the power of God. So here again, the rich man is, is controlling things. No, Father. He tells Abraham, no. Who's, who's in control here? If one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. That's what he thinks. But he's wrong. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Word of God, neither will they be persuaded. Underline that word, persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And no doubt as Jesus finishes this lesson, he is thinking of his own resurrection. Even though he rose from the dead, there will still be those that will not be persuaded. And to persuade someone, to convince someone is to change the way they think. To persuade someone is to change the way they act. That's the difference between persuasion and, and convincing there have been those that have come back from the dead. One sign, Jesus said, you'll have the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jonah was that resurrected prophet. He came out of the, he got you know, barfed out of the uh, belly of the whale and up on the land. And the, the extremely wicked people, the Ninevites, when they heard him preach, what did they do? They repented. And they'll be there in paradise. And, and then there was Lazarus, who I already met, the guy who had died and Jesus raised from the dead. And then there are hundreds and thousands more people who have risen from the dead, including this one right here. I was dead in my sins and trespasses, but God made me alive. There was something inside me that was dead. And it came to life. I can't explain it. And this morning, you know, all over the country, all over the world for Easter Sunday, there will be pastors that will be convincing you of the proof of the resurrection and we know Jesus Christ is resurrected because we have this proof and we have that proof and the, the disciples had fled and but now they're, they're following and that shows that something miraculous happened and we can do the, the historical and the medical and all these things. But you know what? They're, you're not going to be persuaded. If you, don't, if you haven't over the years believed in the Word of God, then, then I can wear myself out trying to persuade you and move you with smooth speech or fancy arguments about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for you and I. But I have a better idea. I believe that uh, the Spirit of God this morning is speaking to some of your hearts about the reality of these things. So, uh, we're going to close up with that. Phil, are you going to come on up? Uh, Phil's going to come up. And as we, we uh, close these things out, there's been a lot that we've talked about, and I want you to see what's the one thing the resurrection can't do. The resurrection can't make you a believer. The resurrection can't persuade you about the truth of life, death, and things to come. 
Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. And you're hearing it this morning. You're hearing the Word of God. The same faith that takes to believe in the Word of God is the same faith that takes to believe in the resurrection. And there's days where I go, I don't understand all this. I don't understand resurrection. I have no clue what heaven's going to be like. I mean, I have some clue from the Bible, but even what the Bible tells me, it's beyond my imagination. And I ponder those things. And many of you have come here as skeptics this morning. You know, you, you got dragged here by your wife or your husband and, or your parents. And man, okay, okay, I'll go for Easter, right? You know, and I'll, I'll sit there and I'll listen. Have, have any of you ever been to a timeshare sales pitch? Anybody? We've all done it, right? Because you get some kind of free voucher and you know that when you go there, you ain't buying, just give me my coupon so I can get out of here. And nothing they say is going to persuade you because you've already made up your mind before you even get there that you're just going through the motions, you're going to hear, but you're not going to pay attention to what's being said because you don't want to buy it. And because of the life you live, you see, in the absence of God, who do you live for? You live for you. And because you enjoy pursuing your pleasures, you have chosen your God. And your God is money. Your God is, is enjoyment. Your God is recreation. And you know what? Might be tomorrow that Jesus comes back. Might be today. Wouldn't it be great if it was like as we were singing the final song, like the, this, the roof of the school opened up and and up the believers, I'd, I'd be late. That might convince some. <laughs> wow, that was weird. Billy, you see that? Yeah. <laughs> but look, the Bible clearly says God um, is not willing that any should perish. They already had everything they needed to believe. And he says, look, even if they won't believe in what's being said to them, they're not going to believe this. So, Here's who I want to appeal to this morning. For, for those that are saved, for those that believe in the resurrection, we have to look forward to things much better than what we have here on earth. We are sojourners. We are pilgrims just passing through here. And there are some of us that, that have some good means. There are others of us that are living like Lazarus, poor, uh, unemployed, difficult, can't pay the rent, can't, you know, whatever. This world ain't our home. But for some of you that live and have made this world your home, your tent stakes are really deep here. You're, you're, you're locked in here. This world is what you're living for. This is the best it's going to be for you. And I want you to know that so you can make an educated choice this morning. Because right now, rather than hearing from me, I want you to listen to what your heart is telling you. Because we have been praying, this church has been praying uh, for days for you. Because you know that you're that rich man. You know you've, you've been living completely and utterly for yourself. And you know God right now is speaking to your heart. And you're going to try to avoid it. You're going to try to... to it's, it's that thumping, pounding, like I know these words are not from that pastor, but they're from God Himself. And that's the only hope, is that you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And today, this morning, we're going to give you a chance to respond to that. We don't often make uh, altar calls. Occasionally I do. 
But what a great day to get saved, Easter morning. And, and to, for you to experience the spiritual resurrection that you can have a whole new life now. God can take you from being selfish to selfless. He can take away bitterness. He can take away years of anger. He can take away years of resentment. He can take away addictions. Look, if you're an addict, or if you're filled with anger and you die, your anger goes to the grave with you. Your resentment goes to the grave with you. All those things go to the grave with you. But then something happens. God says, I'm going to raise you to new life. And in that new life, you get to walk in a new life. You don't have to carry that stuff with you into the new life. You can bury that stuff and start living fresh today. So we have um, come just as you are. Uh, should we stand? Should we sit? What do you think, Phil? Let's stand. Let's do this. We're going to close with a couple of final songs. I'm going to pray right now as you stand. And if you're here with somebody and, and you know that that's, uh, God is speaking to you, just wanted you to come down in front and stand right here. Maybe someone will walk down here with you. Maybe the person you come with say, hey, I know this is for me. Come down and, and would you stand with me because I'm embarrassed because there's a lot of people wearing purple and they must be rich. Today is the day of salvation for somebody. So as we sing, come just as you are. Just come down front right here. We want to pray with you. We want to sing with you. We want to rejoice with you. We'll give you a Bible and everything you need. Praise the Lord, brother. Let's sing, Come Just As You Are. Sing that one more time through um, because I know that there are some of you that are still wrestling in your hearts because you have so much pride that uh, surrendering uh, on a morning like this and, and right now there's a real battle going on within you. So those of us in here that are saved, I just want you guys to pray uh, for those that are still holding out, still trying to wrestle and determined not to be persuaded even though God, the Spirit of God is working in their hearts right now So, uh, and you know again that that's you uh, because I've been there, I've wrestled and I've fought until the Lord finally uh, broke through and so as we sing that through one more time uh, one more opportunity again for those of you that are wrestling to lay it down to surrender your lives to Jesus Christ and to be able to walk in newness of life We're going to close with a song of celebration and we have some souls that God was touching this morning and just quickly from the story of the prodigal son, the final line about the son who was in the house and had left and lived for himself and partied it up that came back. Here's what the father says. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother or sister was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. His cause for celebration. Amen. So we're going to close with a, amen. Give the Lord a hand. So we're going to close with a final song of celebration. I'm going to ask you guys that are up here just to stay right where you are until after the service is over.